Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. As usual, we'll continue with our normal format. First there'll be the story, then a discussion about the story, and then some discussion about this week's recipe and the history behind it. This week's story is Eisenkopf, a Hungarian folk tale based on the version in Andrew Lang's Crimson Fairy Book. So, if you're ready, gentle listener, let's begin. Once upon a time, there lived an old man who had only one son, who he loved dearly, but they were very poor and often had scarcely enough to eat. Then the old man fell ill and things got worse than ever, so he called his son and said to him, My dear boy, I've no longer any food to give you and you must go into the world and get it for yourself. It does not matter what work you do, but remember if you do it well and are faithful to your master, you will always have your reward. So Peter put a piece of black bread in his knapsack and strapping it on his back, took a stout stick in his hand and set out to seek his fortune. For a long while he travelled on and on and no one seemed to want him. But one day he met an old man and being a polite man, he took off his hat and said, Good morning, in a pleasant voice. Good morning, answered the old man. And where are you going? I am wandering through the country trying to get work, replied Peter. Then stay with me, for I can give you plenty, said the old man. And Peter stayed. He didn't find the work hard, because he only had two horses and a cow to look after. And although he had been hired for a year, the year consisted of only three days, so that it wasn't long before he received his wages. In payment, the old man gave him a nut and offered to keep him for another year. But Peter was homesick, and besides... He'd rather have been paid ever so small a piece of money than a nut, for nuts grow on every tree, and I can gather as many as I like, he thought. However, he didn't want to say this to the old man. He wasn't an ungrateful boy, and the man had been so kind to him, so he just bade him farewell. The nearer Peter drew to his father's house, the more ashamed he felt about having brought back such poor wages. What could he do with a nut? It wouldn't even buy a slice of bacon. There was no use taking it home, so he might as well eat it. He sat down on a stone, cracked it with his teeth, and then took it out of his mouth to break off the shell. But who would guess what came out of that nut? Horses and oxen and sheep. So many of them, it seemed as if they would stretch into the end of the world. The sight gave Peter such a shock that he started to wring his hands in dismay. What was he going to do with all these creatures? And where was he going to put them? He stood and gazed in terror. And at this moment, Eisenkopf came by. What's the matter, young man? asked he. Oh, my friend, there's plenty the matter, answered Peter. I gained this nut as my wages. When I cracked it, all of these beasts came out, and I didn't know what to do with them all. Listen to me, my son, said Eisenkopf. If you'll promise never to marry, I'll drive them all back into a nut again for you. Peter was so distressed, he'd have promised much harder things than this, so he gladly gave the promise Eisenkopf had asked for, and at a whistle from the stranger, the animals all began crowding into the nut again, tumbling over each other to get in their tide in speed. When the last hoof had gone inside, the last two halves of the shell shut closed. Then Peter put it in his pocket and went on to his house. As soon as he reached his father's house, he cracked the nut for the second time, and out came the horses, sheep and oxen again. Peter thought there might even be more than originally. The old man couldn't believe his eyes when he saw the multitude of horses, oxen and sheep standing before his door. How did you get these? he gasped, as soon as he could speak. And the son told him the whole story, and the promise that he'd given to Eisenkopf. The next day they took some cattle to market and sold them, and with the money they were able to buy some more fields and gardens around the house, and in a few months they grown to be the richest men in the whole village. Everything seemed to turn to gold in his hands, till one day he and his son were sitting in the orchard, watching their herds of cattle grazing in the meadows, when he said, Peter, my boy, it's time you were thinking of marrying. But, my dear father, I told you, 
I can't ever marry because I promised Eisenkopf. Oh, one promise is here and promise is there. One never ever thinks of keeping that sort of promise. If Eisenkopf doesn't like your marrying, he'll have to put up with it. Besides, in the stable there's a grey horse which is saddled night and day, and if Eisenkopf should pop up, you've got to jump on the horse's back and ride away. No one on earth will be able to catch you. And all safe, you'll come back again, and we'll live on, happy as two fish in the sea. And so it happened. The young man found a pretty girl who was willing to have him for a husband, and the whole village came to the wedding. The music was at its best, and the dance was merry. And then Eisenkopf looked in at the window. What's going on here? It's got the air of being a wedding feast. Yeah, I definitely remember that you'd given me a promise you'd never marry. But Peter hadn't waited until the end of this speech. Scarcely had he seen Eisenkopf, then he darted like the wind to the stable, flung himself on the horse's back, and in a moment he was away over the mountain, with Eisenkopf running fast behind him. On they went, through thick forests where the sun never shone, over rivers so wide it took a whole day to sail across them, up hills whose sides were all of glass, and on they went, those seven times, seven countries, until Peter reined in his horse at the front of the house of an old woman. "'Good day, mother,' said he, jumping down and opening the door. "'Good day, my son,' said she. "'What are you doing here at the world's end? "'I'm flying for my life, mother, flying to the world which is beyond all worlds, "'for Eisenkopf is at my heels.' Come in and rest then, and have some food, for I have a little dog who'll begin to howl when Eisenkopf is still seven miles away. So Peter went in and warmed himself, and ate, and drank, until suddenly the dog began to howl. Quick, my son, quick, you must go, cried the old woman, and the lightning itself was not quicker than Peter. Stop a moment, cried the old woman again, just as he was getting on his horse. Take this napkin, and this cake, and put them in your bag where you can get hold of them easily. Peter took them, put them in his bag, and waved his thanks for his kindness, and he was off like the wind. Round and round he rode, through seven times seven countries, through forests even thicker and rivers even wider, and mountains more slippery than the others he had passed, until at last he reached a house where another old woman dwelt. Good day, mother, said he. Good day, my son. What are you seeking here at the world's end? I'm flying for my life, mother, flying to the world that is beyond all worlds, for Eisenkopf is still at my heels. Come in, my son, and have some food. I have a little dog who will begin to howl when Eisenkopf is still seven miles away, so lie on this bed and rest yourself in peace. Then she went to the kitchen and baked a number of cakes, more than Peter could have eaten in a whole month. He had not finished a quarter of them when the dog began to howl. Now, my son, you must go, cried the old woman, but first put these cakes and this napkin in your bag where you can easily get at them. So Peter thanked her and was off like the wind. On he rode through seven times, seven countries, till he came to the house of a third old woman, who welcomed him as the others had done. But when the dog howled and Peter sprang up to go, she said, as she gave him the same gift for his journey, You now have three cakes and three napkins, for I know my sisters have each given you one. Listen to me, and do what I tell you. Ride seven days and seven nights straight before you, and on the eighth morning you'll see a great fire. Strike it three times with the three napkins, and it will part in two. Then ride into the opening, and when you're in the middle of the opening, throw the three cakes behind your back with your left hand. Peter thanked the old woman for her advice, and was careful to do exactly as she told him. On the eighth morning, he reached a fire so large, he could see nothing else on either side. But when he struck it with the napkins, as told, it parted, and stood on each side of him like a wall. As he rode through the opening, he threw the cakes behind him, and from each cake there sprang a huge dog, and he gave them the names of World's Weight, Iron Strong, and Quick Ear. 
They bayed with joy at the sight of him, and as Peter turned to pat them, he beheld Eisenkopf at the edge of the fire, for the opening had closed up behind Peter, and he could not get through. Stop, you promised breaker, he shrieked. You've slipped through my hands once, but just wait till I catch you again. Then he lay down by the fire and watched to see what would happen. When Peter knew that he had nothing more to fear from Eisenkopf, he rode on slowly, until he came to a small white house. Here he entered, and found himself in a room where a grey-haired woman was spinning and a beautiful girl was sitting in the window, combing her golden hair. "'What brings you here, my son?' asked the old woman. "'I'm seeking a place, mother,' answered Peter. "'Stay with me, then, for I need a servant,' said the old woman. "'With pleasure, mother,' replied he. After that, Peter's life was a very happy one. He sowed and ploughed all day, except now and then when he took his dogs and went to hunt. And whatever game he brought back, the maiden with the golden hair knew how to dress it. One day... The old woman had gone to town to buy some flour, and Peter and the maiden were left alone in the house. They fell into talk, and she asked him where his home was, and how he'd managed to come through the fire. Peter then told her the whole story of his striking the flames with the three napkins as he had been told to do. The maiden listened attentively, and wondered to herself whether what he'd said was true. It was a very fantastic story. And after Peter had gone out to the fields, she crept to his room and stole the napkins and then set off as fast as she could to the fire by a path she knew of over the hill. At the third blow she gave, the flames divided, and Eisenkopf, who'd been watching and hoping all of this time for a chance of this kind, ran through the opening and stood before her. At this sight the maiden was almost frightened to death, but with a great effort she recovered herself and ran home as fast as her legs would carry her, closely pursued by Eisenkopf. Panting for breath, she rushed into the house and fell fainting on the floor, but Eisenkopf entered behind her and hid himself in the kitchen, under the hearth. Not long after, Peter came in and picked up the three napkins which the maiden had dropped on the threshold. He wondered how they got there, for he knew he had left them in his room, but what was his horror when he saw the form of the fainting girl lying where she dropped, as still as white as if she'd been dead. He lifted her up and carried her to her bed, where she soon revived. But she didn't tell Peter about Eisenkopf, who had been almost crushed to death under the hearthstone by the body of world's weight. The next morning, Peter locked up his dogs and went out into the forest alone. Eisenkopf, however, had seen him go and followed so closely at his heels that Peter had barely time to clamber up a tall tree where Eisenkopf could not reach him. Come down at once, you gallows bird, he cried. Have you forgotten your promise that you would never marry? Oh, I know it's all up with me, said Peter, but let me call out three times. You can call a hundred times, if you like, returned Eisenkopf, for now I have got you in my power, and you will pay for that. Iron strong, world's weight, quick ear, fly to my help, cried Peter. And quick ear heard and said to his brothers, Listen, our master is calling us. You're dreaming, fool, answered world's weight. Why, he hasn't finished his breakfast. And he gave quick ear a slap with his paw, for he was young and needed to be taught sense. Iron strong, world's weight, quick ear, fly to my help, cried Peter again. This time, world's weight heard this again, and he said, Ah, now our master is really calling. How silly you are answered Ironstrong. You know at this hour he's always eating. And he gave Worldsweight a cuff, because he was old enough to know better. Peter sat trembling on the tree, dreading lest his dogs had never heard, or else, having heard, refused to come. It was his last chance. So, making a mighty effort, he shrieked once more. Ironstrong, Worldsweight, quick ear, fly to my help, or I'm a dead man. And Ironstrong heard, and said, Yes, he certainly is calling, we must go at once. In an instant, burst open the door, and all three were bounding away in the direction of the voice. When they reached the foot of the tree, Peter just said, At him! And in a few minutes, there was nothing left of Eisenkopf. As soon as his enemy was dead, 
Peter got down and returned to the house, where he bade farewell to the old woman and her daughter, who gave him a beautiful ring, all set with sparkling diamonds. It was really a magic ring, but neither Peter nor the maid knew that. Peter's heart was heavy as he set out for home. He had ceased to love the wife whom he had left at his wedding feast, and his heart had gone out to the golden-haired girl. However, it was no use thinking of that, so he rode forward steadily. The fire had to be passed through before he'd gone far, and when he came to it, Peter shook the napkins three times in the plains, and a passage opened for him. But then, a curious thing happened. The three dogs, who had followed at his heels all the way, now became three cakes again, which Peter put into his bag with the napkins. After that, he stopped at the house of the three old women and gave each one back her napkin and her cake. "'Where is my wife?' asked Peter when he reached home. "'Oh, my dear son, why did you ever leave us? After you had vanished, no one knew where. Your poor wife grew more and more wretched and would neither eat nor drink. Little by little she faded away, and a month ago we laid her in her grave to hide her sorrows under the earth.' At this news, Peter began to weep for he had loved his wife before he went away and had seen the golden-haired maiden. He went sorrowfully about his work for the space of half a year, when, one night, he dreamed he moved the diamond ring given him by the maiden from his right hand and put him on the wedding finger of the left. The dream was so real that he awoke at once and changed the ring from one hand to the other. And as he did so, guess what he saw? You will guess. Why, it was the golden-haired girl standing in front of him, and he sprang up and he kissed her, and now he said, Now you're mine for ever and ever, and when we die, we'll both be buried in one grave. And so, gentle listener, they were. And that is the end of my tale, and I hope it pleased you, for it had no other purpose. If you're just here for the story, now is probably a good time to leave us. But if you'd like to know a little bit more about the story, and also about our recipe for today, then please stick around. I found this story exceptionally interesting for so many reasons. It's a Hungarian folk tale, although a German version can be found as Eisenkopf in Ungarische Volksmärkten by Elisabeth Skarek, translated from the Hungarian. I first read the English version in the Crimson Fairy book by Andrew Lang, translated by Leonora Lang. Andrew Lang is very clear that although his name is on the cover, much of the work of finding stories and translating them was done by other people, quite often by his wife. The story has lots of elements that are present in various European storytelling traditions, but it's only to be supposed that a country which sits so centrally would have a storytelling heritage as mixed as its food culture. There'll be more of that later. A brief, simplistic history of Hungary is probably handy here. Hungary was founded in 895 CE from a previously nomadic people. The Magyars, and moved from paganism to Christianity, officially becoming a country on Christmas Day 1000. Hungary flourished for the next 300 years, apart from a brief two-year Mongol invasion. In 1396, the Turkish Ottoman Empire started moving in on Hungary and eventually occupied large swathes of the country for around 200 years, leaving Transylvania as a separate principality and only northern and eastern Hungary ruled by the Habsburgs. The Habsburgs eventually did expel the Ottomans from Hungary and repopulated the uninhabited areas of the country with Romanians and Slovaks. The Habsburgs reigned from 1699 to 1848, this was not without its troubles and resulted in a war of independence which began in 1848. The Habsburgs were proclaimed dethroned by a new Hungarian parliament in 1849. Unfortunately, the Russian Tsar and the Austrian Emperor were not going to stand for this sort of revolutionary behaviour and eventually the Hungarian army was forced to capitulate to the forces of both leaders. This resulted in the dual monarchy of Austria the Empire, Hungary the Kingdom. In 1867, there were two capitals, two parliaments, until the Austro-Hungarian monarchy was established. 
The First and Second World Wars were not good for Hungary, and communism behind the Iron Curtain curtailed some of its development. It became a democratic republic in 1990, after its first democratic general election. You can imagine what effect all these influences and its geographic position would have on a storytelling heritage of a country. Eisenkopf itself is a German name, and it means Iron Head. Strangely, the reason for this wasn't mentioned anywhere in the tale. It was sort of an assumption you'd know who he was. There are other elements that indicate a mixed heritage. The three old women that assist bear a strong resemblance to the benevolent face of Baba Yaga, and the three dogs with the descriptive names are a feature of German and Scandinavian storytelling. There are two different stories titled The Three Dogs, one German and one Swedish, where three descriptively named dogs, like the stories in ours, save their master and the princesses. The Danish tinderbox also has some similar elements. There are a lot of unexplained things that happen in this story. My first two questions are with Peter's employment. If he is only three days, why not say another year? And why doesn't his very generous employer give him any warning about waiting until he got home before opening the nut? The only conclusion I can come to is that there may have been something lost in translation from the original Hungarian to the German and then to the English. The third question I had was why repress that Peter got not got married? There doesn't seem to be any point to it. Additionally, why does this story go against nearly every other story that treats a promise as an unbreakable oath? Breaking his oath does at least cause Peter some problems, and in his defence, it is his father that wants him to break his oath. He had no intention of doing so. Peter is clearly a man of some honour, as he has no intention of leaving his wife, even after he finds out he has fallen in love with a golden-haired maiden. The use of napkins to create a path through the protective fire is very interesting, and yet another example of how folk tales use everyday objects to overcome supernatural barriers. The cakes which turn into dogs are another fascinating element, and don't seem to be replicated anywhere else that I can find. If anyone knows of any other incidents, I'd be fascinated to hear of them. So, to food. Hungarian food is fabulous, and researching this made me very hungry and desperate to go to a good Hungarian restaurant and or visit Budapest. That is currently impossible, so I've bookmarked several fantastic recipes I plan to try over the festive period. Anyway, to go back to Hungarian food rather than my food dreams, Magyar culture has had a significant effect on Hungarian cooking. The nomadic lifestyle and the importance of livestock are reflected in the large amount of meat dishes, as well as those that are traditional, best cooked in a pot over an open fire. Excellent examples are gulias, soup, which is goulash as we would recognise it, a literal translation of belonging to the cattleman. Pokolt, a richest stew, and hazadla, a spicy fish soup. You'll definitely have to forgive my terrible pronunciation. As the people became less nomadic, both Renaissance and Neapolitan influences became noticeable in the late medieval period. New spices and aromatics were introduced, like garlic, nutmeg, mace, saffron and ginger, and the use of both fruit stuffings and fruit cooked with meat became more popular. If you've listened to any of these before, you'll know that's a really big thing for me. It goes without saying, really, that these were introduced in court and noble circles, but the use did spread down through other social classes over time. There are several medieval Hungarian cookbooks which show some wonderful dishes. Thankfully, three of them, including the Prince of Transylvania's court cookbook, have been translated into English by kind food history enthusiasts and their supporters. You can find links to these in the further reading, if you'd like more information. The spices and fruit are very much in evidence, as well as vinegar, which is likely to have been wine vinegar, as Hungary was a wine-producing country. There's been a Turkish influence as well, due to the Ottoman invasions, most notably in the use of paprika and other chilies, as well as stuffed peppers. Under Habsburg rule, Austrian cooking methods and ingredients entered Hungarian cuisine. This is best demonstrated in the incredible range of beautiful, complex cakes and pastries available. 
Hungarian cuisine has also been influenced by the Balkan states around it. All this is very much a quick tour through Hungarian food, and it's probably best summed up as a vibrant melting pot, as you would expect in a country in the middle of a continent. However, this is very much anchored by the original Magyar cuisine. You might have noticed that I've ignored the communist period. It's not a political choice. It's just that food shortages and a desire for uniformity do not do Hungarian food any particular favours. So, to today's recipe. I think it's an excellent choice, as there's both a historical and folklore basis for my choice. Pagaxa. This turf cake, small round cake or scone, is one of the oldest and most familiar baked goods in Hungary. It was more commonly a sweet cake if the recipes in the medieval cookbooks are anything to go by, but in modern Hungary it's more likely to be savoury. The most popular varieties are potato, butter, cheese and crackling, but there are endless variations. The name comes from the fact that it was originally baked in the ashes of the fire, related via several languages to the Italian focaccia, which comes from the Latin for hearth fire, or focus. This cake baked in the ashes of the fire, appears in a lot of Hungarian folklore and tales, as the item given to sons who are about to proceed on a journey quest. It's also the most likely type of cake that would have been given to Peter by the three elderly sisters, if you follow that reasoning. I'm still unclear on to why they turn into dogs, but I've decided to let that go. I'm a huge lover of cheese scones myself. The British round version, not the strange triangular ones. So I thought that a cheese version of Pagazza would be the perfect thing to try. I found a wonderful recipe online and proceeded to make them. They were wonderful, but not quick. I promise at some stage I'll provide another quick and easy recipe, like the cheese toasty. There are several steps to the recipe, but you can get on with other things between the stages, and the results are definitely worth it. I haven't adapted this recipe, so I've linked directly to it on my blog post and on the show notes. I should probably add a warning though. You will eat a lot of them while they are warm. So don't worry that you'll have around 50 little puffs. As you have so many, no one will even notice the cook's reward that you snaffled in the kitchen. They freeze well like scones, just remember to pop them in the oven for a warm before serving. They'd be perfect to serve along tiny warm sausage rolls as a snack with drinks. I wish I still had some now. I'm going to go make cheese scones after this. They're a quicker fix for my warm cheese baked goods addiction. So, we've reached the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. This is just also another reminder that the next four weeks will be slightly different. As it's December, I'll be doing a wintry tale, followed by the history and folklore of a traditional British festive food item. There'll also be a modern recipe, in case you want to recreate any of them. I hope you'll join me on the next episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. (laughs) 